he falls down like a dead man because he's not meeting him as the lamb. He is meeting him as the resurrected Lord. When those thousand plus men came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus just spoke a word and all thousand fell backwards. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In chapter 1, verse 13 of our study of the Revelation, the Apostle John talks about seeing one like a son of man. As we pick up today, Pastor Carl talks about three different titles that are used in the Bible, Son of God, Son of David, and Son of Man, all three of which are interchangeable. Remember on that occasion when Caiaphas put the Lord Jesus under oath and he said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so when asked if he was the Son of God, Jesus responds by saying he's the Son of Man. Notice, he quotes Daniel chapter 7 in the text. You have said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man, that's Daniel 7, 13, sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas understood when he said he was the Son of Man, he was claiming to be the Son of God, and so what did he do? He tore his robes. And he said, you blasphemed. So for 2,000 years, people have wondered what Jesus looks like. You see the middle evil art, and he's rather a glum, gloody, gloomy, grim person with a, usually a dinner plate behind his head. And, and uh, you know, they've got pictures of him either in a cradle or on a cross or, you know, all kinds of pictures and more Recently, you know, you see pictures of Jesus. He's that happy-go-lucky athletic kind. Actually, there's only one description of him in the Old Testament in his earthly life. Isaiah said, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That doesn't mean he was ugly or anything like that. It just means, just means that there was nothing outwardly that would have drawn people to him and say, I want to follow you. But here's John, and he gives us a picture of the Lord Jesus, not walking in the dusty streets of Jerusalem. And for some of us, that's the only picture we have of him. But God wants to lift up your vision. And he wants to give you a picture of his son now in heaven. And he does that metaphorically by the way he dresses his son. And we will see these like and as phrases all the way through. These uh, similes. And when you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe what is said. Notice verse 13. I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching down to the feet. This description of his robe and his sash speak of his superiority and of his care. Now, the word that is used here for robe is the Greek word podere. And outside of the Bible, it was the kind of robe that only a king could wear. Inside of the Bible, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which most Jews read in the first century because they lost their ability to speak Hebrew, called the Septuagint, LXX in your margin. And the Septuagint, the word pote, ray, was used of the robe the high priest would wear. And notice in addition, 
he wore a golden sash. And that's exactly, by the way, what the high priest wore. He was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. He is underscoring that Jesus is our great high priest. That he has not forgotten these believers and these seven churches and the churches today, another awful persecution this past week just seems never to end. God has not forgotten his people. He is interceding. He is the high priest who is able to save forever, Hebrews 7 says, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them he is our great high priest, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so when you think of Jesus, John will display him in three offices, prophet, priest, and king. He is our priest who forever lives to make intercession for us. He is the prophet. He will speak with absolute authority and someday he will come and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. But here his, his robe speaks of his superiority and his care for you. In addition I want you to see his head and his hair. It speaks of his eternality and his purity, his holiness. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His head and his hair were white like snow, remember? In Daniel 7, 14, the one who had that designation of himself, it was the Ancient of Days. It was God the Father. His white hair suggesting his eternality, his glory. And here it is used of the Son of Man because the Son of Man is the Father's equal. And the word for white is the word lukos. It means a bright, glorious, shining light. And here it is used as it is all the way through the Revelation. We will find ourselves in white robes someday to speak of the holiness that God will give to you, that he imputes to your account, that you will realize in a glorified body fully, but that Jesus has because it's part of his makeup. His head is like white snow. That speaks of his eternality with no beginning or end. But it also speaks of his purity. Uh, the prophet said, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be red like wool. King David in Psalm 51, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So when you see terms like white as snow, like pure will, you're speaking of absolute purity and that is who the Son of God is. Notice the third aspect of his character is seen in his dress. His eyes, which speak of his insight in his discernment. Hang on, his eyes were like a flame of fire. When he looks, he looks with discernment. And we will see these expressions all the way in chapter 1, then taken out of chapter 1 and applied to the seven churches. And when God uses this expression in the second chapter, we're going to see that the Son of Man who is walking through a particular local church will see right through them. Now, you may think that you have some kind of barrier over your heart today, but there's a window on your heart, and it's not stained glass, and God can see right through, and he can see all of your motives and all of your thoughts and what's going on in your head right now with his divine x-ray vision. 
You can hide from your mate what you've done. You can hide from your pastor, but none of us can hide from Almighty God. And if he were to walk up and down these aisles as he will walk through one of the churches, what would he see this morning? He looks at our motives. He looks at our plans. He looks at our desires. And so it's not by accident that the same designation given of the Father with his eyes is now given here of the Son. Ah, but there's another piece of clothing I don't want you to miss. Notice his feet and how they are described. It speaks of his strength and of his judgment. We read now in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, and it was made to glow in a furnace. His feet were like burnished bronze that has been made to glow in a furnace. That speaks of his strength and his durability. And what a contrast with what we studied in Daniel 2, where we saw that magnificent statue that represents all of the great empires of the world. But the statue has feet of clay mixed with iron. And when that final stone comes and hits the statue, if you remember, it turned it into dust and it was blown away by the wind. But not so with the Lord Jesus. His feet are like bronished, uh, burnished bronze. Another simile here. That is, it's like bronze that has been tested and strengthened with fire, with all the impurities removed. Absolute strength and like a king, people would sit under the feet of a king. And so we have that expression, the feet of kings. But here are the red hot feet of Yeshua, the reigning Savior of the world. And if you know your scripture, and we'll study it later in the Revelation, bronze is a symbol for judgment in scripture. Remember in Numbers chapter 21, when the children of Israel rebelled against God and God sent those fiery snakes through the congregation and people began to drop like flies and die all around and, and God told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and set it high on a pole. And so the, the, the snake was a, a reminder of the sin and the bronze was a reminder of judgments. And of course, even in the temple, even in the tabernacle, there was an altar called the brazen altar where the animal sacrifice to express his God's hatred and judgment towards sin was seen. And so God said, I want you to make a snake, Moses, and I want you to set it high on a pole. Because Jesus Christ becomes that bronze snake. Remember what he told Nicodemus when he said you must be born twice to go to heaven? And Nicodemus says, I don't get it. How does it happen? And finally Jesus speaks to a man who knew the scriptures and he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember they held that bronze serpent up. It seemed rather foolish to the natural mind. God said, you look at that bronze servant and you will instantly be healed. And I'm sure people thought that's folly. Give me some medicine. Give me something I can do. No, God says, look and live. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's lifted up as that bronze snake on a cross. And then the most quoted verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So his eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. Here comes the judge with all of his discernment and all of his insight and none will be able to escape. Fifth, Verse 15, his voice, it speaks of his divine authority and power. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. One day when Jesus speaks, all the world will listen. His voice was the sound of many waters. 
I thought when I read this again this week, I thought, well, here he is on the Isle of Patmos. Maybe, maybe he's in a storm and he hears those raging waters of the Aegean. You go back to Genesis 1 and you see the authority of God's voice. He speaks and it happens. And when you come to John's prologue in his gospel, John chapter 1, the Son of God speaks and it happens and all things are created through him and by him. And there is coming a day, though this world may try to mute his words, though this world may try to mock his words, there is coming a day when they will hear his word like the sound of many waters. When I was a little boy, eight years old, my dad brought us and eight children in the family to the Niagara Falls. And we got in that little boat, I forgot what they call the Maid of the Mist or something, and it, it brought you real close to the falls. In fact, I think they brought you closer back then than they would today for legal purposes. But I'm telling you, the noise was absolutely deafening. And you could shout and scream but the falls, the sound of mighty waters overshadowed anything you could say. My friend, there is coming a day when Jesus will speak, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. And when they meet him, Romans 3.19 says, every mouth will be shut. They will be absolutely speechless before the authoritative Son of God. Number six, his right hand speaks of his protection in his preservation. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now this verse tells me that he's holding the seven stars, which verse 20 tells me are the seven angels, which chapters 2 and 3 will tell me are the seven messengers, the seven pastors. He's not talking, as we will see, as I hope to prove to you next time, of heavenly angels, but of pastor angels. We'll come to that. But here he defines the seven stars as the seven angels that includes in the designation the seven churches. And the church is in his right protective hand. God uses that description in Isaiah 41, 13. I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Most people are right-handed, and so it is the hand of strength, and so God uses that imagery of himself, that he is holding us with his powerful right hand. Jesus said to those who tried to trick him on one occasion, the Lord said to my Lord, this dialogue within the Trinity, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So being at the right hand is being in the place of authority. And Jesus is holding his churches and his pastors, thank God, in his right hand. And it's a protective hand. No one can snatch you out of his hand. I love that phrase in John 10. I give, we don't earn it, eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me to you is greater than all. And no one shall snatch you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These Christians who have misread their Bibles, who have been sloppy and careless, saying you can lose your salvation, are so far from the truth. Listen, you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you with his protective right hand. Seventh, and finally, his head that describes his indestructibility and his magnificent glory. We read now in this verse, and out of his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And so he describes Christ's head, both his mouth 
in his face. First, we are told that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You know what the two-edged sword is, right? Hebrews 4, verse 12. Put it in a margin. It is the word of God. It pictures the indestructibility of God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The grass fades, the flower falls off, but the word of God stands forever. And you imagine these Christians hearing this with Emperor Domitian who is in charge. Domitian thought that his word was the final word, that he was an authority. And God wants to encourage these seven churches and by extension us that his word is the final authority. And so in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back on that white horse, he will have the sharp two-edged sword protruding from his mouth. Now remember... That's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. Remember, this book was communicated, Revelation 1.1. It was signified, signified, S-I-G-N, the first word, four letters of signified. It was signified through symbols. So you understand what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. And so there is coming a day when Jesus will speak by his own word. He will destroy his enemies. He will even destroy the Antichrist and the devil and the false prophet and assign them with all lost people to the lake of fire. And that sword is your sword today, and I hope it is in your lap. I hope you bring it to church with you on Sunday. You need to. You'll get a lot more out of any sermon. You don't need an electronic Bible. You need one maybe at home, but not here. You're not going to learn your way around the Bible in an electronic Bible. Look, I had one of the first one. I was a tester for Logos in 1985, the first major Bible program. And I can tell you as a pastor, you will never learn your way around. Let's see, plug in a Genesis 2, Galatians 5. You won't know your, where your books are. And then when it comes to trying to minister to people, you are going to be at a loss. Don't tell me otherwise. Don't come up after. I get the letters. I'm not interested, all right? Here's the thing. His word is authoritative. And the apex of the vision comes in verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Remember Saul of Tarsus? And he met Jesus on that Damascus road. And he told King Agrippa there was a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Remember the prophet Malachi? He describes the return of the Messiah from heaven as the sun, the S-U-N of righteousness, coming back with healing in his wings. There, the transfiguration, there's just a glimpse of Christ in his brilliance. But here in heaven, there's no light needed because the Bible says Christ will illuminate heaven. And the Gospels, we have his suffering. We have his sorrows. And the Gospels, we have the Lamb of God, but here in this great revelation, we have the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is sovereign, who will someday speak his word, and it will be done. Now, that's what he heard, that's what he saw quickly. What did he do? Verse 17, what John did, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, this is a brilliant, majestic, glorious, yet terrifying picture of Jesus in heaven. I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is no root out of the dry ground. This is no corpse on a cross. 
This is the resurrected Lord. And when John sees him, he passes out. He's not dead. He's like a dead man. And Jesus, with that comforting right hand, said, Do not be afraid. Someone said it's better to be dead at the feet of Jesus than to be alive anywhere else. And I know that's true. But here he comes and he says what he told those disciples that night when they're in that storm and they're terrified and they think a ghost is coming to them. And he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now remember, this is John the Apostle. I demonstrated in the opening sermon that he was a half-cousin of Jesus. I don't know if they grew up together as little boys or if Jesus had him like a little nephew, but they had a special affinity for one another. And so he's the beloved disciple. And there's a close relationship, and it's not effeminate when John in that upper room has his head on his breast. But I want to tell you, his head is not on his breast. He is at his feet. He falls down like a dead man because he's not meeting him as the lamb. He is meeting him as the resurrected Lord. When those thousand plus men came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus just spoke a word and all thousand fell backwards. And they recognized that this was no ordinary carpenter from Nazareth. And so they yielded to his command not to touch the others, that they would only take him. Here's John and he sees him in his brilliance. And my friend, when you see him in his brilliance, you won't strut into heaven and say, oh, here's my buddy Jesus. My friend, you'll have the response that Isaiah had, where he, he, he just is absolutely astounded with the brilliance and the holiness and the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 6, when you have the uh, lost people of this earth crying out in Revelation 6, 17, they will ask a rhetorical question, who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And the implied answer is absolutely no one. And so here's John and he loses it all and he falls down like a dead man. But then we read, this is not the end. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. When he says, I am the first and the last, he is affirming again what he has already said in chapter 1, that like the Father, he was before anything else. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the living one. He is the resurrected one. I am alive, he says, forevermore. Forevermore describes his indestructibility in his resurrection body, and someday we will share a body like he has, the Bible says. Charles Wesley says, alive in him, my living head, that great hymn, because we are identified with Jesus. When you are born again, we studied on Wednesday nights that we are baptized in the Spirit. At the moment of conversion, you're identified with the Lord Jesus. You are alive in him. Now, notice the words here. He speaks here of death, and he speaks of Hades. Death has the body, Hades has the soul, but Jesus has the keys over both. Listen, it may be terrifying to some to think that they're going to take their loved ones and plant them in the ground. And it is a terrifying thing if you don't know Jesus. I have people tell me all the time, I don't want to be buried in a casket. I want to be cremated. I say, what's your problem? I'm claustrophobic, they tell me. Oh, really? I don't think it matters at that point. Not to mention the biblical pattern is not cremation, it's burial. 
When you plant the body in the ground, so to speak, you are saying in faith like a dead seed that's put in the ground that will sprout a flower, that you are affirming the resurrection. Lay that aside. That's another sermon. The gates of Hades, Jesus said, shall not prevail against my church. And that was an important word because Domitian thought he was in charge. Nero, they thought they were in charge. They thought their word was final. And so Jesus will say on one occasion, do not fear. Those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Look, Nero did some horrific things. And Domitian, who is reigning on the throne when John writes this book in 95 AD, he too is a wicked man, but both of those men had wicked, awful, terrible deaths, as history records. And the worst death is the second death, the eternal death. And Jesus says to these churches, I have the keys to death into Hades. And so with great encouragement, he's saying, I have authority over the rulers who are persecuting you. They can't lock you out of heaven and they can't lock you in the grave. I am the one who lives forevermore. This is no corpse on a cross. This is no dry root out of the ground. This is the majestic, magnificent, resurrected Savior that someday every knee will bow and confess that He is Lord. You can still meet Him as Savior, but a day will come when your opportunity is gone. And if you do not meet Him as Savior, then you will only meet Him in the end as judge. Now, Father, thank You for this marvelous Sunday You gave the Apostle John. And that because of the experience he had on that Lord's Day, you gave him these 22 chapters in the Revelation that we, by your grace and mercy, will study. But help us as we read this book and study the magnificent unveiling of the Lord Jesus for us to fall more in love with him, to follow him more closely to have a reverence and an awe and a holy fear for him, as your Bible says is the beginning of wisdom. I pray for those who are in the sound of my voice, some who are uncertain that heaven is their home. They'd like to go, but they don't know. And they don't know because they're not sure they're good enough. Help them to see, Father, that they are not good enough and never can be. That only Jesus can impute righteousness to them. Help them to realize that he didn't pay for some or most of their sin, but all of it on a cross, that whoever will call upon the living Christ will be saved. Help us this week not to be ashamed of the message. Help us as we go to make disciples to care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Help us to get off our high intellectual hobby horses and to get down in the trenches and to begin to live for Christ and to share the good news with those who will listen. And help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us. That when we see our Savior in glory, he will indeed say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We ask it, our Father, in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. To listen again to The Vision of Patmos from our study of Revelation 1, verses 9 to 18, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV3. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl begins a look at the Churches of the Revelation and a message entitled, When Your Love is Gone. Join us then as we search the scriptures. We'll be right back.